Oh, wow. It's really nice. I did consider doing this outdoors, um, and especially in the park. Uh, but because of the nature of today's passage, um, I think I just wanted to not be conscious about the people walking by and hearing what I said. And I even considered uh, doing this in front of one of the churches, but I thought it would be too on the nose because I'm touching on one of the verses that lots of churches are um, using to justify getting people back into churches physically. So uh, in the end, I chickened out. And so I'm here in my apartment on my beanbag looking outdoors at the sun uh, and reading Hebrews chapter 10. Hope that's okay. Uh, anyway, how are you? Uh, nice to see you again. Welcome back to the Daily Bible Reading Show. We're looking at Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, uh, which talks about, among other things, um, a cleansed conscience, about approaching God, about coming back together in obedience to God's word. So, okay, let me find Hebrews chapter 10. There we go, and I'll pray. Heavenly Father, thank you um, that when we do come together, it is you who draw us together. So please, would you speak to us, would you draw us to you, that we might find ourselves amidst other brothers and sisters who share this faith, who share this love, who share this salvation in Christ. Encourage us, especially in your word. Uh, to be obedient, to be faithful, and to be outspoken in proclaiming the gospel to the people and to our loved ones around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you again for joining me um, on this very bright, sunny day uh, as we look at Hebrews chapter 10. Here it is. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty about their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So let's just stop there and think about the context. I'm sorry, it's kind of bright. <laughs> I stand in the shade, or if I stand in the light, there's this is blinding sunlight coming into my eyes. Oh, okay, whatever. Um, the context, the con oh, wow, it is really bright. The context is worship. But, you know, you talk about worship today, you think of uh, drums and music and people waving their hands, that kind of worship. But worship uh, in the Bible and the Old Testament is offering sacrifices. It's killing an animal and offering its meat, offering its blood to God to forgive me of my sin. I've done this horrible thing. I've rebelled against God and something needs to die in my place. So worship is actually that act of offering this sacrifice. And therefore, that's why all this picture, worship picture language you know, for example, verse 1, those who draw near to worship is not people walking into church and then expecting, you know, um, the music to come on and singing loudly. That That's not initially the context it's talking about. I hope you get that. No, it's talking about walking into the temple, you know, approaching the priest, bringing the animal, the animal being killed, and the animal then offered up to God. And the purpose of this worship, let's use the word sacrifice, the sacrifice is to cleanse us from our sin. Verse 2, for the worshipers 
would have been cleansed for once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. So you come to God knowing that you are sinful, knowing that you need forgiveness. And this sacrifice then almost pays for your sin, pays for that forgiveness. But what he's saying is all that form of worship, that sacrifice that was in the temple that had been carried on for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and maybe thousands of years does not work. It doesn't actually cleanse us from our sins. And he's saying, you actually know this. He says, they would no longer have felt guilty about their sins. Externally, you look at it, that thing dies, that animal dies, and I know it's supposed to make me forgiven. And yet there is this weight on me, on my conscience. I still feel guilty. I've done that thing. I've wronged God. And somehow, why am I still feeling this way? In other words, he's saying, it doesn't work. Actually, it doesn't actually effectively have that result of cleaning you from God's judgment, from your sin, from that feeling of guilt. Verse 4, because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. <laughs> How can you ever think that that thing dying for you is enough? It's impossible. Therefore, verse 5, let's pick up from verse 5. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I've come to do your will. First, he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, here I am. I've come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. The first meaning all these sacrifices, all these offerings, all these animals to do the second, which is to do God's will. Um, verse 10, and by that will, we've been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Christ, Jesus Christ, once for all. This is from Psalm 40, which we read yeah, a few days ago, actually, I, we looked at this exact psalm, these exact verses in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. And so what he's talking about here is that all those sacrifices, you know, what God really wants instead of you bringing that thing or doing that duty, you know, that work, is a kind of obedience, wanting to do what God wants you to do, living in a way that pleases God. And he says that that's what Jesus Christ came to do. Jesus Christ came to do God's will by dying on the cross. So it's actually both. He actually does offer the sacrifice, but it's the sacrifice of his death on the cross. But actually what that sacrifice shows is that Jesus really wanted to obey his father. His father says, go to the cross, die for these sinners, do my will. And Jesus said, your will be done. And that's what we're meant to see on the cross. Jesus Christ, the ultimate worshiper, the ultimate worship leader, who pleases God by obeying his will. Now, to put this into context, you know, don't just think about, you know, church, you know, singing in church, you know, singing music, or even serving in church, you know, playing the music, or even giving the sermon. But, you know, if you've come from like, um, kind of like a temple background, you know, if you, if I'm, uh, this, this might 
be so strange to anyone here in the UK. But you know, uh, back in Asia, where you have temples, you have mosques, you have places of worship, Hindu temples, Buddhist temples, that kind of thing. And you go in there, and there's a kind of reverence. And then you're meant to give an offering, whether it's some joystick. Sometimes you're burning some paper. Maybe you know, for my Indian friends, you know, they're giving some offering. You know, some alms, that kind of thing. Or even the method of fasting. Now, for my Muslim friends, there's something that seems almost very right in that. In that we need to do something. We need. We can't just say God forgive us and then that's okay. But there needs to be a rightness in this kind of payment, this kind of doing. And I would give some credit to those who are pursuing these forms of rituals or piety. Let's call it that. That you know they realize that actually it's not enough to just do the thing, but in your heart you go, oh, I hate this, I hate this, I hate this. But actually, there is a rightness in also in the heart in matching the action. I think almost everyone realizes that. And the moment you have that, you realize, hey, this is much harder. It's much easier to do the thing to offer that joystick or even to give that money. But actually, to say that God, actually, I want you to have this money. <laughs> God, I want you to have my worship. That kind of love for God, it's much, much harder. And it's saying that actually in the Old Testament, it has that effect that as you're doing that work of offering that worship, you realize actually this isn't happening rightly. God actually wants this, this heart, this will. And actually God wants this more than this. God actually desires this to be changed by this. So whether you were Fasting, giving money, doing that thing, or even singing in church—the moment you do that, you realize that hey, actually, God is interested in this. And the point is, it is hard. You know, it's easier to do this. All these outward things, this is hard. And instead, what God does is God sends someone who absolutely shows us what it means to obey God completely. That's Jesus Christ. And it says here, verse seven again. Let me read it to you. Here I am. It's written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, and he does his will again by dying on the cross, by obeying his father, by being rejected by men, by obeying his father, and dying this horrible death on the cross. More, more about this. Let's let's pick up from verse eleven because there's an expansion on this contrast between just these sacrifices and this absolute obedience that God requires. Verse eleven, day after day. Every priest stands and performs his religious duty. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. So it's talking about、um, specifically this Jewish priest in this Jewish temple offering these Jewish sacrifices. But again, think of any priest; they're just doing it again and again and again. You know, and the fact that they're doing it again and again and again means actually it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't work, and yet, and yet they do that. And there's a point where th- there needs to be a point where we ask, so what's the point? You know, if it worked, you wouldn't need to do it again and again and again. Now some of us may go, oh, but it's because we sin again and again and again. But think about this: it's not just saying that we sin again and and again, and we need to be forgiven again and again. It's saying that that first sin that you thought you offered the sacrifice for didn't work. Therefore, what it's saying that as you sin again and again and again, it's just adding on, adding on <laughs> all all the sins and all the payment, and you pay for that. And even though you offer these sacrifices, it doesn't reduce it one bit. You're just piling up 
all the judgment and all the payment and all this weight and all this guilt that is upon you, the more sacrifices you do. In which case you're going again, what's the point of offering all these sacrifices? Verse 12, but when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You see that, you know, one priest is standing, this priest is sitting down. One priest is offering many, 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 many sacrifices. Jesus offered one, once for all, it's repeated twice, you know, offered one time, one sacrifice, verse 12, verse 14, uh, verse 14, because by one sacrifice, he's made perfect forever. And so this here is then the contrast between any kind of temple, any kind of service, any kind of priest that is here on earth, including Jewish priests, including including even you would almost want to wonder even like Christian kind of like acts of worship, you know, giving alms and stuff like that, which are good things to do. But between what Jesus does once for all in his death on the cross, he isn't going to die again and again, again because his one death paid once for all, all of past and all into the future, every sin, every judgment, every kind of act of disobedience before God that was covered over by Jesus's once for all payment on the cross. And there's a confirmation for this for by the Holy Spirit, verse 15, the Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I'll make with them. I think it's Jeremiah. This is Jeremiah 31. Yep, Jeremiah 31. Uh, After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice of sins. Now, what's the point of this. It's saying that the church is not temple, (laughs) or at least it's not meant to be this kind of ritual again and again and again and again. You think of Sunday services, you think of Bible study, where you have Bible studies again, 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 Sunday services again, 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 again. It is not meant to be another one of these sacrifices that happen again and again and again. Rather, the only service that needed to have happened happened already in the past in Jesus Christ. And therefore, what does it mean to have Sunday services week in, week out, and having Bible study week in, week out? And here's the big difference. It is, again, not meant to be like a priest. Your pastor is not a priest. You're not coming there and then hearing this sermon somehow thinking to you through the sermon, oh, this is my sacrifice to you. I'm I'm, I'm sitting through this long sermon. That, that is not some act of worship by which then God says, okay, all right, I forgive you your sin for this week. That is not what's happening. Rather, each time we're just remembering that it is done. It is done. Jesus has died and we have been forgiven. And the reason we do that is because sometimes we forget or sometimes it's just great to remind each other, you don't need to do anything to make yourself forgiven, acceptable before God. Now, having established that, having established that, and I, I, I'm pretty sure not everyone is, you know, gets this yet because I still see, I still see how church services, uh, meet Christian meetings are still branded as a kind of 
temple worship service. You know, you even see the architecture of the churches these days. You know, have like holy of holies, that kind of thing, different sections to the temple. People don't get this. I mean, they still think they're still reenacting all these sacrifices today when actually the Bible clearly says you're not supposed to do that. It's already been done. But I know that it's very hard to get over this hurdle. But that's why there's the second half of this chapter in chapter 10. By the way, this is kind of long. Uh, I have a, it's a bit of a rant, I must, I must confess, because um, I, think, I think even here in a very reformed tradition here in Cambridge, here in the UK, we unintentionally, I'll put it that way, we still repeat this mistake. We still, we, we, we make people feel guilty <laughs> for not turning up for church. And the way in which we do that is we lay on them the kind of guilt that was there in the ineffective temple sacrifices. And we don't realize we're doing that because we don't put on them the confidence that Jesus Christ has paid for their sins. We, we make it seem as if, oh, if you don't come, your sins won't be forgiven. No, we don't say that that much. But we lay it on thick when we don't see them coming up and we don't tell them the gospel. You are forgiven. You can approach God. God wants you to come and God has enabled you to approach him fully forgiven and ex and fully into his presence. So let's see the second half of uh, chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, verse 19, therefore, since we have this confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Now, this is, this is number one of three let us commands in Hebrews chapter 10. Number one is let us approach God. And here is approach God. It's not saying, again, come to church. <laughs> it's saying you have access to God. It's saying approach God in heaven. That's why he's saying let us come. You know, you can actually come to God's presence in heaven because heaven has been cleansed by the sprinkling of clean water that cleanses us of our guilty conscience. That's what it says. Through this curtain, that is his body. That is through Jesus Christ. So it's almost as if, you know, in the Old Testament again, you know, you were outside the temple. Only the priest should, could go into the temple or go into the tabernacle. But you're outside and the priest says to you, okay, bring your sacrifices. And the priest says, I will bring your sacrifice into God's presence. But... Imagine saying to the priest, no, 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 no. I'll go in myself. I'll give my sacrifice myself. I'll go and see God myself. And the priest says, who are you? And says, I am coming through Jesus Christ. That's why he's saying, let us do this. Let's go into the most holy place. The thing that says, no entry. You can't go in. It says, no, God says, I can go in right there. And that's the point. You're not saying, come to church. Go up to heaven. You can do this through Jesus. And his body is talking about him as this curtain that used to be this barrier that has now been torn because of his death on the cross. Now go in. No more barriers. Go in and meet God. And secondly, the second lettuce is in verse 22. Let us draw near to God. Uh, oh, sorry. Verse 23. Now the second lettuce, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised us is faithful. 
and let us consider how. Um, actually, no, there are four. So, so let us second second let us is let us hold on to this hope. In other words, holding on to the gospel, holding on to this hope that. And they're going through really tough times at this point of time, you know, as Christians, holding this hope that God will save us, that these trials and these difficult times, you know, they are part and parcel of God's journey to bring us all the way to the end. You know, we hope in God that He will save us. He is saving us, but He will save us all the way to the end. So, but I'll put it as holding on to the gospel. Don't forget this reality that God has given us in the gospel. Third, let us sorry out of four, not out of three. Let us consider how we may spur one another towards love and good deeds. So here is that encouragement aspect towards one another. Let us spur one another. How can we help one another to live out this gospel towards loving and good deeds? And here is, you know, that fruit of salvation. You know, it's again, it comes from knowing God's love for us. Then we don't live out this love towards one another, and as you can see now, there is a progression there. Therefore, towards the let us, it start first of all we go towards God, but now we're starting to go towards one another, encouraging one another, and this is now coming closer and closer towards what the Bible defines as church. What do we do when we come together as a church? And the coming together verse is in verse twenty-five. Let us not give up meeting together. As some are in the habit of doing, but let us encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, what's the purpose? Uh, I, I put in this heading, you know, um, you know, let us not give up meeting together. Um, and I, I think I put in a description about how lots of churches I hear are using verse twenty-five to say, "Come back." <laughs> you know, for a long time, for last year, we weren't able to meet physically. You know, you could only look at each other on Zoom on these screens, that kind of thing. But now, 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 now that we can open up, you have to come back, come back, come back. What verse do they use? Hebrews ten twenty five. Let us not give up meeting together. And it says, you know, some of you are in the habit of not meeting. You're comfortable at home, just looking at the screen. The Bible says, come back and meet together. Now, two things. Number one, I think that's right. There's a reason this verse is here, and there's a, there's a reason why this verse is the last of the "let us" kind of like clause. Actually, the author of Hebrews is building up to this point that actually I think the situation at this time is that people weren't meeting together, and he's trying to encourage them and say it's such a good thing, it's such a godly thing, and you now God has given us one another. Don't give up on one another. Please come together. And some of you have not met together for so long that you have then this habit. You know, it says you have this habit of doing. But it says the way to counter that is you encourage one another, and which is what all these churches are doing. So, I would say firstly that there is a reason, and I think it's a right reason and a good thing that they are saying. I think you know, on a biblical basis alone, just because we are Christians in obedience to God, not because I'm telling you to do so, not because it, even it is a, like a good thing. But because the Bible tells us that as a church we should be meeting physically together, and I think that's a rightness in this kind of exhortation and this kind of command. But having said that, it comes after a series of exhortations to 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 make to make it the point that actually it's because we have access to God that therefore we can now have access to one another and can come together and encourage one another. Now think about it this way: 
you know, the Old Testament way of coming together was fruitless. You do it again and again and again. It doesn't cleanse consciences. It just causes you to be guilty again and again and again. And I want, I want to caution us about using Hebrews 20, 10.25 in encouraging people to come back. It's to co- encourage people to come back to do the same kind of thing again and again and again. Building up guilt again and again. Now, guilt is such a powerful and effective, <laughs> very, very effective tool in getting people to do something. And I think he, the author of Hebrews has gone out of his way to say that your guilt has been cleansed. You have access to the Father. And that's why you had come back together. He's gone out of the way not to use that tactic to get people to come back together. And I think simply because of that, we have to be very careful of not using that tactic to get people together. Does that make sense? No, not to say that, oh, you know, if you come together, then you hear the gospel. If you come together, then your, your guiltiness will be cleansed. If you come together, then you'll meet Jesus. Now, I have, to, I have to really caution them. I know people don't say that outright, but sometimes when we hold back the gospel until people come together, that seems to be the opposite of what the author of the Hebrews is doing. Hebrews spends the last two, three chapters outlining the gospel. Jesus has paid our sins. Jesus has entered into heaven. We have access to God. Therefore, meet together. There is an order whereby the gospel gives birth to the church. There's an order to that. That is because of the gospel that God has brought us together to him, that God has brought us together as a church, that the gospel precedes the church. But sometimes in our way of emphasis and our way of persuasion, we make it seem as if the church gives birth to the gospel. You come together and then you'll be saved. You come together and then you'll hear about how you can be saved. You come together and you have all these problems, then God will save you by coming together. And not only is this doctrinally very, very iffy, (laughs) but I think it causes people to be very insecure. Because, let's face it, you know, and and, you know, I hear this in announcements sometimes. Oh, make sure you sign into this. Make sure you do do that. Make sure you do do that. And then people who do sign up and who do turn up and who are faithful, and then they join these things with all these expectations, find that their consciences are cleansed, their guilt is still there, and their hope is kind of like dashed because their hope is not exactly on the gospel, on Christ, who is paid for our sins once for all. But somehow in these coming together, just by simply coming together, we are hoping that we, you find that people who've invested this hope have invested it in the wrong direction. And I'm sure, I'm sure that that isn't our purpose when we say to one another, come back so they can encourage one another and you can hear the gospel. And it's such a subtle, it's such a subtle difference because here is author Hebrews almost making that point. He's like, you should meet together. Some of you are meeting together. You should come back together. But he's saying the reason you should do that is because Christ has brought us to God. He has spent all this effort telling you the gospel. And then here he is telling you how to encourage one another to live out the gospel. Now notice, the third lettuce is actually spur one another towards good works and towards loving deeds. And you know, sometimes we get that order mixed up as well. Say, you come together and then you can do good works. And then you can do, no, it says it's actually part and parcel of that living out of that gospel. And so we lose that order of the gospel giving 
birth to the church and we make it seem as if, as if the church, only the confines of the church has the gospel, only we have the gospel. And therefore, if you don't come to church, you don't have the gospel. Now, we don't go that far, but we seem to imply that. And what happens is that even the people who then come to your church and hear that exhortation and obey in the faithfulness find that they don't have the gospel because they haven't put their trust in Christ, but instead in this kind of exhortation, this kind of doctrine that seems to be watered down because it's preceded the gospel. Let's move on. Verse 26. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified him and who has insulted the spirit of grace. For we know him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And here it's talking not just about sin, but deliberately sinning, this continual rebellion against God. Now he hinted at this back in chapter 6, talked about the dangers of falling away and the idea of almost taking for granted Jesus' death for us on the cross. But here, what he does is he builds again Old Testament to New Testament, temple to Jesus' sacrifice. And he says, in the Old Testament, Moses gave this command under the testimony of two or three witnesses, verse 26, if you rejected the law of Moses and you had two or three people, this witness says, oh, that guy really rejected God. You know, that person died without mercy. And therefore here, verse 29, he compares it to Christ. How much more severely a man deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God, trampled Jesus underfoot and treated as an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant. I can't say that I understand fully where he's getting at, but I do understand, you know, the severity of what he's warning us as Christians. And he's saying is exactly to us, you know, you have been saved from death, from the kind of punishment that you understood from the law. You understood that what the Old Testament was pointing you towards was the consequence of death. And therefore, I'm telling you the consequence of rejecting life. You know, there's only so much you can do to encourage someone towards life by telling them the consequences of death. You know, it's kind of like a patient, you know, um, who has, you know, a serious illness. And you're trying to encourage them to go through an operation. And so you start showing them all these pictures, <laughs> pictures of all the things that would happen to you, all the kind of like maybe cancerous growths, all the pictures of really sick people who didn't take that operation. And so uh, sometimes that works. Sometimes that works. And, you know, it scares people and it wakes them up and say, okay, all right, right, I'll take that, 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 that operation. I'll take that procedure. But he's saying, you know, that already is bad enough. Under the Old Testament, it showed you just how serious it was, was to reject God. But here, it shows you something even more serious because you're rejecting not just the judgment, 
but you're rejecting that salvation. Hence, you know, the, the term here is not rejecting death, but rejecting life. Verse 29, again, trampled the Son of God underfoot, treated an unholy thing, the blood of the covenant that has sanctified him, insulted the spirit of grace. So in other words, it's saying no to something good as opposed to saying no to something that is bad. So in a, so again, the contrast, uh, instead of showing them pictures <laughs> of all these people who are like, oh, who are sick and dying because they didn't take the procedure. Here you show someone who has the, the effects of what then would happen if they did take the procedure. Here's someone who's able to live a full life, who's able to have family, who's able to have kids, who's able to, um, you know, be able to live a full life, in other words. And that's why he talks about the spirit of grace, about the blood of the covenant, about the Son of God. You know, he's talking about all the good and great blessings that we have received as Christians. And he's saying, knowing all that, and you reject that, therefore, there is no way out. All that's left for you is judgment. And hence, you know, this is a warning not to non-Christians, but to Christians, because only Christians know that they've been saved. Only Christians understand that Jesus has given us this forgiveness, this new life, this new status as God's children compared to non-Christians. And he says, if you know all that and you reject that, (sighs) you know, poor you, you know, that that the only thing left for you that you've rejected salvation is God's judgment. And he says, it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But like chapter six, you know, he says, you know, we have more confident, we have more confident for you, uh, better things for you in terms that accompany salvation. So he had that version of that is verse 32. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light, when you stood your ground in great contest in the face of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insults and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You sympathize with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So verse 35, do not throw away your confidence. He's saying, you know, you guys are the real thing. Now we just warn you, <laughs> warn you in case, you know, you were not the real thing. You rejected Jesus. You rejected his salvation. But he says, hey, I can remember when it was so difficult for you to be a Christian and you stood firm, you loved your brothers, you joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property, you know, meaning becoming a Christian means the state took away all your money, emptied your bank account, took away your homes. But he says, yay, you know, this is worth it because I'm, and he says that happened to you. And that's why we're speaking to you as people who have this confidence. And verse 35 again, don't throw it away. Don't throw away your confidence. It will be so richly rewarded. No, well, the word so is in there. It says it will be richly rewarded. But you get the sense, you know, you will not lose out. You need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Verse 37, for in just a little while, he who is, com- he who is coming will come, will not delay, but my righteous one will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who believe and are saved. So it's exactly the same as Hebrews chapter 6. He warns, he gives that real warning, but he says, hey, 
but we are those who are saved. So you are the ones who are saved. And the reason why I want to end on this note is that isn't this a better way <laughs> of encouraging people to come back together with the church? Rather than saying, oh, if you don't come to church, you're a bad Christian. Or actually, I, I've seen, I've actually, I was so shocked. I saw this, this article actually, and I understand where they're coming from. It says, oh, if those people don't come back to church, they're not real Christians. I was like, brother, I mean, I understand where you're coming from, but this is not the Bible's way of getting people to come back, especially if they are Christians which reminds them that you are the real thing. Which reminds them, you know, it was so hard for you in the past, but you persevered and you knew how good it was. Don't throw it away. Come back. You know, God loves it when you're faithful and God knows that you've been saved. And I know that you've been saved. No, I know that you want to. Don't throw it away. Have this confidence. Come to God. Come together. Hold on to the gospel. It is the gospel that has made you one with Christ. Don't throw it away. Don't throw away the gospel. Don't throw away this confidence. Don't throw away this opportunity. Isn't this a better way of encouraging people to come back together? Isn't this a way to tell people of the gospel rather than you don't do this, you're in trouble. You guys, make sure you do that. This, 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 this. Friends, I think... I see this, I think people, other people see this, and I wonder if you see this. If you do this, essentially what you're saying is, you are not sure. You're not sure of the gospel. You're not sure of the gospel's effect on the church. And more than that, you're even not even sure that the people in your church know the gospel, in which, in which case, what have you been telling them? Friends, the people, the author of the Hebrews is speaking from a position of confidence. He is sure that the gospel is true and will bring people to God. He is sure that these people who are his brothers, no, they are the real thing. And that's why he says, I'm confident that of better things for you, things that accompany salvation. I know that you want to do things and I know it's hard. I know that you're, you're, you know, ifing and eyeing and so, but no, it's okay. Come back. I know that you want to do this. And he's giving them the confidence to do this. But finally, he is secure in his position with Christ. You know, we are those who believe and are saved. He himself, you know, is confident of God and of his people and of the gospel. And that confidence overflows. Friends, what I'm appealing to you, if you are one of those leaders who are, you know, just trying to climb, trying to get everyone to come back to church and say, please come back. Please have more confidence in God. Please more have confidence in the gospel and your insecurity and your desperation is, frankly, it is almost unfaithful, bordering on the, on the point of, you know, what are you putting your confidence in? Is it in the, just the point of gathering for the sake of gathering? And the fact that somehow if this bunch of people come together, something special will happen? Or is it in the fact that Jesus Christ has done something that none of us could do? He offered that once for all sacrifice that makes us right now acceptable before him that enables us to come into God's presence right here, right now, into heaven, to God with full confidence. Friends, if you speak that, you're speaking the gospel. If you speak that, people will respond. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you that it encourages us, rebukes us, but calls us to place our confidence in Him, in Christ, 
and not in ourselves. Lord, you know, I understand the challenges. I understand where people are coming from in terms of what it means. Just the logistics of coming back together, just the confidences and the fears of coming back together in the climate of coronavirus, in the climate of so many uncertain things. But one thing is certain. The gospel speaks of that once for all, forever done sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to place our confidence in that. Not in ourselves, not in nothing else, and not in our insecurities as well. But to speak boldly, clearly, confidently of Christ and what he's done and what he's doing through us, among us, and for us. Help us to see this in church this coming Sunday. Help us to see it today in our own lives lived out for you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.